Go ahead and find Psalm 95 with me. Psalm 95. Psalm 95, let's begin in the text. Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." I think uh, one, of the, one of the hardest and most frustrating things about life is the fact that you know something doesn't mean that you automatically do it. So, for example, we all know we probably shouldn't eat that donut. We know it's probably going to make us feel bad. We know it's not going to be good for our health or our weight or whatever. But actually, walking away from that donut is a whole other deal from knowing you should. The head knowledge and the actual doing are two very different things. That's, that's life. And this phenomenon is observable in the lives of Christians. Christians believe all these great things about Jesus and all these great things about morality, all these great things about marriage and about forgiveness. And yet it happens all the time. Christians can be every bit as selfish and messed up as those who don't profess Christ. They know about morality, but that doesn't always mean they act morally. They know about God's design for marriage, but their marriages don't always reflect Christ and his church. They know they should forgive, and then they don't forgive. So... Christians can believe all of these things and then not live them out. Why is that? Well, to believe something and to become something are not the same thing. To profess a belief and to embody that belief are two very different things. We're not just a brain in a vat. Yes, it is important to believe right beliefs. But we're not just believing creatures made to think correct thoughts. We're also emotional beings who feel, and we're embodied beings who who live in these bodies, and we're acting beings who do things. And so what there needs to be is really a bridge between our beliefs and the rest of us, a bridge between our beliefs and our emotions, our beliefs and our actions, our beliefs and our character. And this morning, I want to think about what that bridge is. It is my contention that spiritual disciplines like worship are God's means of bridging that divide. Worship is how God builds a bridge from our intellectual belief to our emotional center and then on into our character and into our life. Worship is that bridge, the bridge from believing to becoming. And I think Psalm 95 will help us here. This is a well-known psalm inviting God's people into worship, and I want us to think alongside the psalmist this morning about worship. I'll tell you up front the three things we're going to think about, three things we're going to learn about worship. Number one, why we should do it. Number two, what it is. And number three, how it's done. Why we should do it, what it is, 
and how it's done. First point is uh, somewhat more brief before we get into the meat of the psalm. So and we've already begun to hit on this. If you want beliefs to actually produce character, those beliefs have to go deeper than the intellect. They have to be more than just a correct answer on the doctrine test. The beliefs have to be driven into your heart through practices, through spiritual disciplines that engage the entire person, that engage, yes, the mind, but also the will and the emotions. And so here we are at worship. And we've all brought beliefs here about God. Hopefully we brought right beliefs, good beliefs. But for God, holding beliefs about him is not the extent of of the discipleship he wants us to have. And so we come here in order to sing those beliefs. And when we sing those beliefs, we engage not just the mind, but we engage the imagination. We engage the body and the voice. We engage engage the mind as well. When we sing, we sing our beliefs. When we pray, we pray our beliefs, and we express things before God. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we literally ingest food based on beliefs. Corporate worship is a way of engaging the whole person and driving those beliefs down into your life. And unless you're engaged in regular and thoughtful worship, there is a good likelihood your beliefs will not permeate the rest of your life. There's no bridge to bring belief into your life. If you say, I believe it, but you don't actually worship regularly or worship well, if you don't have any kind of a prayer life, you're going to be inconsistent at best and you're going to be a rank hypocrite at worst. Your beliefs are probably not going to show up in your character. Let me make an illustration to try to drive this home. Imagine you're trying to move a big boulder so that you can build a road. There's a place you need to build the road, but there's this giant rock in front. If you take an explosive and you put it up against the front of the rock, you're probably not going to move the rock. It might shear off the face. It might superficially harm it. It's going to create a lot of noise, but it's not actually going to move it. Nothing will be changed. But if you drill down a hole deep into the middle of the rock, way, way down, and then put the explosive there, then when it detonates, things will begin to change. What I'm trying to say is, if you believe, but you do not really worship, if you believe, but you do not really pray, if you believe, but you do not practice the spiritual disciplines God has given us, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't confess, if you don't live in a community of faith, then you're not taking your beliefs and putting them down all the way at the center of your heart. And if you don't do that, nothing's going to change. Worship is one of those things God gives us to make our beliefs actually shape and transform us. That's why we need it. So let's begin to talk about what worship is and uh, look more closely at the psalm. Let's begin here with the definition. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your mind, your heart, your will, your whole being as you do so. To put it more succinctly, worship is using your entire person to ascribe ultimate value to some object. Let's break that down into the different parts. First, this part. Worship isn't worship unless it engages the whole person. Worship must engage the whole person. Look back with me in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. We are told to worship joyfully. We are told to engage our, our emotions, make a joyful noise to him. We're actually commanded to worship joyfully. Joy is a necessary part of worship. Emotions are a part of worship. But that's not all. This is verse 6. 
O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. So now we're told to worship submissively, to surrender our will to Him. We're supposed to bow. We're supposed to kneel. So this is not talking about our emotions like verses 1 and 2. This is about the submission of our wills. We're supposed to come and surrender our lives, surrender our preferences, surrender our think-sos to God, who He acknowledges greater than us and who He acknowledges knows better than us. And then at the last part of verse 7 and following, He moves on to something else that must be engaged in worship when He says, Today, if you hear His voice and do not harden your hearts. He says we also need to come to listen to His voice very carefully. You must not ignore it. You must not harden your heart against it. Which is an emphasis on understanding on the mind, on listening and taking in a message, understanding it, not ignoring it. And so what we have in this psalm is, is your mind, and then backing up you have your will, and then backing up you have your emotions. Every part of the person is being engaged in this psalm. So realize what this means. If like in verse 8, if you subscribe with the mind to Christian truth, but you're never actually moved to joy, And verses 1 and 2 are for you. Or another type of person has feeling, has emotion, but there's no real bowing. There's no kneeling. There's no submission. And verses 6 and 7 are for you. Or someone else might, might, have, might have great mental understanding, might, might have great, uh, great, great intellect and, uh, and strong knowledge when it comes to God. But if it doesn't actually change you, if week after week you're just as grumpy, and just as bitter, and just as anxious, and just as harsh, and just as out of control, then you submit, to, submit before him, verses 6 and 7. What I'm trying to say is, worship involves the whole person. And if the whole person is not involved in it, then you're not really worshiping. Because worship takes your belief, and it drives it down into the heart so that it can really change something. Real worship engages the whole person. That's one part of our definition. And then we come to this part of the definition, which is this. Worship is about ascribing ultimate value. Worship ascribes ultimate value. What does that mean? Uh, there's a little preposition in Psalm 95 that's really key to the psalm. It happens twice, and it shows what really triggers worship. This is verses 1 and 2 again. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's an invitation to come and worship joyfully and sing to him. But then notice verse 3. How does verse 3 begin? Here's our preposition. For the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods. What triggers all this joyful singing? Answer verse 3. For the Lord is a great God. Then go to verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. What's the trigger for all this submitting, for this, this change that we're about to, about, about to make? Verse 7, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture. So here's what the psalmist is doing. He is thinking, he is weighing, he is calculating, he is reckoning, he is treasuring the excellencies of God. He's thinking about God and he's thinking about his greatness. When he says, for God is our shepherd, that, that's hearkening to all kinds of stories and accounts and statements in the Bible that have to do with God being a shepherd. He's turning over all that he knows about God until there's a sort of explosion. An explosion into his emotions and into his life. That's the trigger for the worship. 
these treasuring up the excellencies of God, until his whole life explodes with joy, until his life begins to change as a result of it. That's ascribing ultimate value, thinking the greatest, truest thoughts about God until it overflows. You know, the the Ten Commandments really sort of cover all of life. It's a summary of, of all of the law of Moses. You realize the first two commandments, the most fundamental of the commandments, cover worship, basically. The first commandment actually just, God just says, you must worship me rather than anything else. Now, notice he doesn't say, worship me, not nothing. God says, he holds out no possibility that you're worshiping nothing. He says, you'll either be worshiping me or, or, or you'll be worshiping something else. Now, how can he say that? Because there are lots of people that say, no way. I don't worship anything. I don't go to church. I, I don't, I'm not a religious person. To which God says no. Everyone builds their lives. Everyone gives their hearts to something. Everyone has their hopes set on something. Everyone is ascribing an ultimate value to something. Everyone lives for something. Everyone is seeking meaning in something. You have to look either at your career or you look at your spouse or you look at your family, or you look at a claim, or you look at your pickup truck, or you look at your art, or whatever. Whatever it is, you're looking at something and saying, if I have that, if I accomplish that, if I possess that, then my life is worth something. Then I am worth something. That's all worship stuff. Do you know where the word worship comes from originally? It comes from the old English phrase, worth shape. To be shaped by the worth of something. It's to look at something and say, now that is so valuable, that is so important, that if I were to have that, then I would be worth something. You're being shaped by the worth of something. It is so precious to you that it begins to change what it is your life is about and what you seek. And what God is saying is everyone is doing that. If you say, if I could just achieve that, then I could feel like my life is worth something. That's worship. You're looking at that thing, and that thing is your God, and you're being shaped by the worth of it. Everybody has a pearl of great price, something they're selling everything in order to get. Absolutely everyone has that. What the psalmist is saying is, if you really want to change your life, you have to take your heart over whatever finite thing that you're worshiping, and you have to turn it toward God. And until you get your worship in order, you will never get in order. Let me, let me try another, uh, another illustration. I want you to imagine a woman who uh, who's inherited a piece of jewelry from her mom. Her mom dies and she inherits this piece of jewelry. And she gets it and she looks at it and it, it's kind of nice, but she can't really tell what it's worth. And so she ends up just putting it on, on top of her dresser and she kind of forgets about it. Uh, years go by and it's there. Maybe it gets knocked off a few times, gets vacuumed up, she finds it. Um, it just kind of sits there. But one day, for some reason, maybe she's watching Antiques Roadshow or something, and she says, you know, I'm going to take it to a jeweler and find out what it's really worth. And so she brings it to the jeweler, and he gets it, and he puts on his little, his little uh, eyeglass, his little loop. And in a bit, he, he kind of pauses, and he says, now, wait a minute. And he goes back, and he gets a bigger, a bigger eyeglass. And then he does a test, and then he begins to go do some research. Next thing you know, the jeweler is breathing harder. And beads of sweat are breaking out on his forehead because he's realized this is actually an historic piece that was long lost, thought to be long lost, and is so valuable it actually belongs in a museum. 
And he realizes, he counts up, it's worth more than all the jewelry he's ever sold in his shop for the last 30 years put together. Now what's going on? His entire being is being engaged by the worth of this thing he is assessing. He's looking at it, and he's thinking about it, he's calculating it, he's adding it up, he's noticing its excellencies, and it's beginning to make an explosion in his life. Think about it. When the woman held it in her hand, she felt nothing. But when he held it, knowing what it was, he starts to sweat. What's the difference between them? They held the exact same thing. So why the difference? Because he was being shaped by the worth of it, and she wasn't. So what happens next in our illustration? I'll tell you what happens next. A bit of evangelism. He's going to come out and preach the good news to her about this valuable thing. He's going to say... You know what, you're one of the silliest customers I have ever had, but you realize you're more wealthy than you ever dared imagine. And then she is going to begin to be shaped by the worth of it. When it dawns on her, it's going to change her. Here's what I'm trying to say. An awful lot of people in the world believe in God, but are no different for it. They believe in God, but they're just as selfish, and they're just as unforgiving, and they're just as ungrateful, and they're just as messed up. Do you know why? It's because God to them is like that piece of jewelry jewelry sitting on the dresser. He's in your life to some some degree, but, but you have no sense of his value. No sense of his worth, his excellency, his beauty. It's never really dawned on you. It's never changed you. It's never been taken into the center of your life so that your whole being explodes with joy and you begin to change. It's because you don't know the discipline of doing what the psalmist does. Everybody is being shaped by the worth of something. And the psalmist invites us to come and be shaped by the worth of God. That's why worship is so critical. That's why it's the bridge from believing to actually becoming. Which brings us to number three. I want us to think about how worship is done. I'm thinking about the big picture here. Yes, we worship when we sing. We worship when we pray. We worship when we commune with Christ. But my my question is a bigger one. How? How are we to do those things? My first answer to this question is, we, do, we worship corporately in the Bible. Worship is a corporate thing. One of the most obvious things about the whole psalm is that it's all in plural. And so notice, let us worship, not let me worship. It doesn't begin, oh, come, let me sing. It's not what it says, oh, come, let us sing. Everything in this psalm is about us. Now, why is that so important? Can't I just go home and pray about it? I can sing just as well alone as I can with other people. You know, I don't like getting out. It's a, whole, it's a lot of trouble. I'm busy. I don't like half the people there anyway. Why do we need to worship corporately? There's a, there's a famous passage in, in one of C.S. Lewis's books where he talks about um, friendship. I'll read it to you and then explain a little bit. He says this, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other light than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charlesian joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. So what he's saying is there there were three great friends here. And one of them died. And Lewis is saying, when, when I lost friend A, 
part of me sort of figured, well, at least I have more of friend B now. I sort of have him all to myself. But what he began to realize is that when friend A died, he also lost the part of friend B that only friend A could bring out. And began to realize you can only really fully know someone in a fellowship. You can't fully know someone. You can't know someone as well as you possibly could one-on-one because you only see the part of that person that you bring out. And so his point is is that a human being can't be as well-known as they could be one-on-one. Even a finite human being is so complex, you get to know more of them when you fellowship with them corporately. And what I'm saying is, you will never really know God unless you corporately praise and corporately pray and corporately sing and corporately study the Word of God. You have to do it with others or you will never know Him as well as you possibly can. You'll only have a distorted little view of Him, a distorted idiosyncratic little view of Him unless you are willing to read and pray and talk and worship and praise together with God's other children. That's the reason corporate Christian worship is so crucial. You know, 80% of of Americans say that you can be a good Christian and not go to church. Now, I want to scrutinize, what in the world do people mean by good Christian? I have no idea. But 80% of Americans say you can be a good Christian and not go to church. Well, I guess someone should have told the author of Psalm 95 because he seemed to think that we, not just I, should sing to the Lord. Good worship is done corporately. Number two, good worship is done rhythmically. I'll explain what I mean here. So Psalm 95 contains really different and diverse descriptions of what is being accomplished in worship. So for about the first five verses... There is all praise. It's all a note of praise and singing God's praises to him joyfully. And then we get to verse 6, and suddenly there, there is a, a, a different sort of posture. There, there is a submission. There, there is a confession of our inadequacies and our sin and, and bowing before God. And then you get to verse 7, the end of verse 7 and end of verse 8. Now there's something else. There, there is a sort of a, a devotion of the mind to listening to God's word. And so we have in this psalm, first praise and then humble self-evaluation and confession, and then hearing his word. And really, it's a pretty good summary of Christian worship. What have we done here today? Well, we've begun by praising in song, and praising in prayer, and ascribing to God the worth that he is due. And and then you know what we did? Hopefully, we we scrutinized our own hearts, and we scrutinized our own relationship with our Savior as as we contemplated his sacrifice. One of the lines in the song we sang before the Lord's Supper is, let us discern our head. Let us go look inside and see where we stand in relation to our Savior who died for us. And now what we're doing is we're hearing God's word and we're hopefully listening and not hardening our hearts against it. There's a sort of a rhythm to good worship. It's, all, it's not all just one thing. If worship is all praise, and you never get down to actually looking at your life and scrutinizing yourself and thinking about, now, now, what's wrong with me? Where do I need to change? Where have I not been grateful? Where have I not been a disciple? Or if your worship is just all about you and scrutinizing yourself, and you don't ever think bigger thoughts about God. Or for someone else, worship is all academic, just sitting and taking notes and reading the Bible, but never really engaging your heart. You have not been fully worshipful if you only cherry-pick the one of these that comes most naturally to you. There's a rhythm to our worship. 
There's an interconnectedness to everything that we're doing. We come before God in worship and we see His greatness and His holiness, which leads us to think hopefully about our littleness and our unholiness. We're led to the foot of the cross and reminded what God has done in order to raise us up and make us holy, which should make us scrutinize our lives and our discipleship. And then we open God's word to hear from Him, which hopefully equips us to go out into the world a little more conformed to His image than we were when we woke up this morning. There is a rhythm to worship. There is a completeness to what happens in Psalm 95 and hopefully a completeness to what happens to us here. And finally, in number three, worship must be done restfully. So the last part of Psalm 95 is about an incident that happened in Israel's history, verses 8 through 11. Basically, they were wandering through the wilderness. Every day they had to get up and put everything in their lives on their back. They needed rest. They wanted rest. They wanted to go to the promised land where they could settle down and live in their homes and, and have their farms. We are told that because they didn't listen to God's word at a place called Meribah, that story is told in Exodus 17, because they hardened their hearts, because they said, God, I want your blessings, but I don't want to listen to you to get them, their getting into the promised land was delayed for 40 years. Now, we don't have time to go read this, but Hebrews 4 says that this problem, the problem of Israel at Meribah, of not listening to God's word and therefore not getting that rest and having to stay burdened is symbolic of an even greater burden and an even greater rest. Hebrews 4 says we're still burdened. And as long as we refuse to worship God and as long as we refuse to hear his voice, we're going to remain burdened. As long as we refuse to listen to him, our character is going to stay messed up. We are still going to be in our hypocrisy and our inconsistency. The real rest comes when we hear and follow his voice. The real rest comes when we go where he leads. When we conform our lives to his word. When we're full of faith that he knows best. And when we're full of praise for all that he has done for us. What I'm trying to say is is worship is not a matter of simply appeasing God. We get God off our back. Okay, God, I gave you what you asked for. Now leave me alone for a little while. That's not worship. Real worship is not a burden. Actually, worship is a means of removing burdens. It removes the burden of sin and guilt when we remind ourselves of Jesus' atoning death. When we praise the true God, it removes the idols we've been carrying around, the false things we've been ascribing ultimate worth and value. True worship takes those things off our back. In worship, we come face to face with the God who treasured us so dearly that he sent his only son to redeem us, who suffered and died on our behalf. Real worship comes face to face with the God who did that for us. I challenge you to come and really worship that God and somehow leave unchanged. See, when you realize that you are God's treasure, and then when you drive that truth into your heart, that'll make him your treasure. And then you'll really start to worship. And then what you believe about God will really start to change you. And so my question as we end is, are you being changed? What is God to you? Is he just a set of propositions that you affirm? Yes, I think God is like this. And yes, I think God wants us to do this. Good. I hope that all those are true. I hope you get the right answers on the doctrine test. God says, I'm not done with you. I want you to take those things into the deepest part of your heart. And I want it to let it change you and transform you.
That's what worship helps us do. Is there someone here that needs to come and to give their lives over to this God who's trying to capture all of you, heart, soul, mind, and strength? If there's anyone that needs to come to submit themselves before him in baptism to have their sins washed away, if there's someone that needs to come and confess their sins before this God, come forward now as we stand and sing. Washed in the blood of the crucified one.